Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. Now, I decided to read something a little on the lighter side this week, I mean, following the rather heavy book last week on cults. So I went with kind of a different kind of cult, which is the cult that glamorizes the Old West, making this week's book of the week Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, at Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West by Tom Clavin. And the topical cocktail is called Tom and Jerry. Uh, Tom and Jerry is one ounce of dark rum, one ounce of cognac, a tablespoon of the Tom and Jerry batter, which I'll include the recipe for in the description, a hot whole milk to top, and then you garnish with nutmeg, cloves, and allspice. Why Tom and Jerry? We'll get to that. So let's do this. So in the introduction, Clavin does go over the difficulty of sorting fact from fiction when dealing with these massive like historical legends from the old west right and these are people who we know existed it's not like they're it's not like they're entirely myth or anything like that but they're they're legends they were legends in their own time literally and it's actually not just Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson it's Dodge City itself is treated as a character in this book and rightly so I mean without Dodge City to tame would history even remember Earp or Masterson would they have gone down different paths and maybe not been the hero lawmen that they were so it's not just the three main characters though it's not just Dodge City Wyatt Earp Bat Masterson the entire book it reads like a who's who of Wild West history I mean you've got uh, the whole the entire Earp and Masterson clans first off they're all interesting people he includes, you know, who did what, when, and what happened to them. We've got uh, the the James and Younger uh, gang, so J Jesse James, his brother of the Younger gang, Billy the Kid, Buffalo Bill Cody, Wild Bill Hickok, Doc Holliday, Kate Elder, Eddie Foy, Nat Love, uh, Bell Star, all were characters in this book. And Clavin included a brief history for, uh, for some of them and a more detailed history for others, kind of depending on their closeness with the main characters, Wider, Bat Masterson, and Dodge City itself. So let's start with Dodge City, because Dodge City is the main character, right? It's, it's not called Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, it's called Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson. So Dodge City herself kind of rose up out of the ashes of prior military forts in the area, uh, first established to protect travelers on the Santa Fe Trail, but ultimately growing up near Fort Dodge. Dodge City was basically a nexus of where the buffalo herds roamed naturally, where cattle drovers would drive their cattle to, and where the railroads came. And it's probably the latter more than anything that helped Dodge City come into being, because without the railroads, the buffalo hunters and cowboys would have just bypassed Dodge City entirely in favor of someplace with the railroad, because the rails were the fastest way to transport the product east. Now, one of those misconceptions that kind of gets stuck in my head I mean, kind of right up there with, you know, the Civil War was fought primarily in Virginia and not all over the freaking place. But one of the misconceptions that gets stuck in my head, to get the batter out here, is that uh, the, the buffalo were hunted nearly to extinction to make room for the cattle herds. And that's not the case. There, there was plenty of land and pl pl plenty of grass to feed both cows and the batter is really prone to separation. So you have to keep mixing it up. Like I made it last night and then refrigerated it because it's got egg in it. And uh, I woke up and it entirely separated into two layers. So now I'm having to mix it again. I mixed it and I'm mixing it again. 
batter. It's actually worse, believe it or not. The, the, the cattle, there was plenty of room for the cattle and the buffalo tri herds. I mean, there, there was no question on that. Buffalo were hunted so perniciously and, yes, to the brink of extinction because people in the East had developed a taste, no pun intended here, for buffalo tongue and buffalo hides. Uh, the hides for clothing, the tongues for eating, hence the pun. So these enormous herds of buffalo were shot and killed just for their tongue and skins and then left to rot in the sun. Like everything else was left to rot in the sun, even though the meat is highly edible. The milk is basically, it's a top off, but it says a small coffee cup. Small is anywhere from four to six ounces, which just about fills my cup. Use the spoon to mix it up and help me get clear off the uh, Tom and Jerry batter. And a, a dab of each. Technically, I think there's supposed to be more nutmeg in there than the cloves or the allspice, but eh, screw it. I have a Tom and Jerry here. Let me see how this tastes. These enormous herds of buffalo were hunted and shot and killed just for the tongues and skin, left to rot in the sun. I mean, one of the scenes greeting people as they get off the railroad would be these enormous piles of buffalo skeletons after the rotting and decomposition had happened, which certainly creates an impression when you're first getting off a train into a new city to see an enormous pile of bones just sitting there. It was so bad, the hunting was, just th that decimation of the herds. We're talking millions of buffalo in a very short period of time where we're just slaughtered wholesale. The Buffalo Bill, you know, Buffalo Bill, the, I mean, he pretty much got his start as a buffalo hunter. Uh, he started spearheading the conservation efforts. That's how bad it got. I had also heard that buffalo were hunted as part of a targeted attempt at wiping out the primary food source for Native American tribes. That does not actually appear to be the case. I, some of the tribes, when they first realized that the money was going to be good, were participating in similar, although the tribes keyed much faster than white man did to how bad this was for the buffalo um, and started trying to stop the buffalo hunters. But it wasn't, the initial push wasn't to wipe out their food source. It was literally just unmitigated greed. They wanted the money that they would get from the east for the hides and the tongues. Uh, the effect was ultimately the same, though. The, the, the tribes were left with very little um, meat on the hoof, so to speak, and uh, that helped force them into reservations where they could go on the government dole. And that has worked out really well for them, don't you think? Well, that's tasty. There's a reason this is a warm weather drink. This is good. <laughs> oh, and I have a whole batter thing to get through now. I mean, there were so many of the beasts. How could it ever dry up was kind of the thought. And by the time, but, but it did, right? And by the time Bat Masterson gave up buffalo hunting, conservation efforts were underway. So the buffalo hunters were one of the rowdy bunches that would come through Dodge City, making it a not so safe place to live. The other leg running this race towards perdition were the cowboys driving the herds in for transport to eastern slaughterhouses. So they were coming up from Texas into Kansas because that's where the railroad had gotten to by that time. They'd drive the cows up, cows would load onto the railroads, transport east to the slaughterhouses. So between these two groups of men and doing their part to ensure the good times just kept rolling were the soiled doves, which is the Wild West polite term for prostitutes. Now. I'm not saying being a prostitute is by any metric an easy life, I'm not pretty much ever, but in the 19th century, more often than not, it was the women running the joint, all right? The women ran the houses of, of ill repute, if you will, and I believe both Virgil Earp and at one point Wyatt Earp, although Wyatt's I think was more common law, they were married to women who ran these brothels. 
So there's no judgment there, right? Literally, they were like, yeah, who gives a shit? It's the higher, it's the higher echelons of women who really had a problem with, you know, a woman earning her, her money on her back. And that kind of remains true today. But again, not an easy life because customers could certainly get rough. And if there wasn't a bouncer on staff, you could get beat pretty badly. You were host or prone to catching an entire host of social diseases, most of which had no cures back then and had really bad long-term effects on your overall health. So being a prostitute allowed women agency and a steady income in the 19th century, still not an easy life. And in Dodge City, even less so because your customers, I mean, the hunters, buffalo hunting was a very smelly, stinky business because there was an awful lot of blood and not a lot of water to be washing off the blood when you were out on the plains. So they'd roll into town stinky and nasty. Same for the cowboys. I mean, they weren't covered in blood, but they're still covered in the dirt and dust of the trail. And next to getting their whiskey on, they wanted to get their mm -hmm on. And so the prostitutes just grin and bore it, but earn decent money doing so. And in Dodge City, business was booming. That's a warming drink indeed. Next up was a quick history of Wyatt Earp and what brought him to lawing in Dodge City. So Earp was born on March 19, 1848 in Monmouth, Illinois to Nicholas Porter Earp and Virginia Ann Cooksey. He was the sixth child of Nicholas and the fourth child of Virginia Ann, who was Nicholas's second wife. James, Virgil, Morgan, Warren, Martha, Virginia, and Adelia, so there's seven, plus Wyatt makes eight, were all born to Virginia Ann. Um, Nicholas's first two children were Newton and Mariah, and they were born to his first wife. So Nicholas had 10 children in total, um, eight of those by Virginia Ann, and that's a trooper right there, man. Especially with the Earp clan, because they were big, rambunctious, a lot of boys, and Nicholas was a roamer. He was a restless man. He, he, they started in, started in Illinois and moved the family around quite a bit, taking them all the way to California before eventually looping back to Missouri. He went back to California, Nevada. He was kind of all over every place because he was just kind of this roaming, restless spirit. And in all of that time, Nicholas tried farming, mining, Cooper, uh, Cooper is, is a barrel maker, um, constable, soldiering, teaching, and leading a wagon train, which I believe is what he was doing when he moved the family to California. I think the book even said that he brought the, the wagon train in whole, which is, means he was really efficient at his job because that was not the norm to bring the entire train in in one piece. I'm going to actually top up with the rest of the milk because I don't have that much left in here. One of the jobs that he had at one point in California was he ran his own saloon, running a saloon was something that a lot of the Earps and Mastersons did. And at one point he was offering Tom and Jerry's year round, even though it was typically only a holiday drink, but he offered it year round. And he was very proud of his Tom and Jerry's. I have no idea what his actual recipe was. This one I got from liquor.com. I will as always include the link. Once they hit California, Wyatt determined he did not want to be a farmer. Um, actually, I think he decided that beforehand, but while the family was moving, it kind of solidified. And he took up riding shotgun uh, on a stagecoach with his brother. One, excuse me, his brother was driving the shotgun. I think Virgil was the brother driving. And Wyatt was his, his shotgun driver. Um, that term in Zanella, I mean, now it just means riding passenger in the car. Back then it meant you're literally riding shotgun and shooting off bandits who might show up on you. And the Earp brothers were a very efficient team working together. And they drove all over the West. They eventually landed in Dodge City, Kansas where Wyatt did some buffalo hunting before being assigned marshal. Now, prior to Dodge City, Wyatt had been a lawman before in Lamar, Missouri, and that's where he met and married his first wife, 
Orilla Sutherland Earp. Now, sadly, she died in childbirth about nine months after they married, and Wyatt left Lamar. He never returned there. He also never talked about it again. So I'm not sure what happened after his wife died, what his mourning period was like, but he left, he never returned, never spoke of it again. Uh, I think that she was likely the love of his life and kind of the pedestal upon which she sat was the one which his other wives were compared to and for the most part failed to live up. I think that her death left him utterly heartbroken and because the three women who were associated with him after that were all prostitutes, and that might've been on purpose on his part. Um, you know, if you find another good, pure, Christian, law-abiding woman, then you have somebody who might actually compare to that first love of your life. And this way, I, mean, I don't know, I'm armchair psychoanalyzing and I'm probably doing it badly, so I'm going to stop right there. Um, he was married at least two more times, possibly three, but two of the three were common law wives at best, that like they never actually got married in a church or anything. I think his fourth wife, Josephine, who was with him until he died, may have actually legally been his wife. Now, on to Bat Masterson. Bat Masterson was born Bartholomew William Barclay Masterson. I mean, God, no wonder he changed his name to Bat. That's a mouthful. He was born on November 26, 1853 in Henryville, Quebec, Canada. I'm not sure when, I think when the family moved was, he was fairly young. I don't even know if he ever actually obtained U.S. citizenship. No idea. Not sure if it mattered back then. The Masterson family moved to the U.S. when he was a child. They mostly stayed in the Midwest. Masterson was a buffalo hunter. That was his primary way he cut his teeth and how he got used to, to killing and slaughter. And he was proficient with his sharps rifle. I mean, he could get a shot very clearly. And when he got tired of the dirty, bloody business of buffalo hunting, he switched quite easily to gambler and to railroad grading. His job on the rail railroad was kind of a short stint because the guy who initially hired him, uh, one Raymond Ritter, kind of bugged out without paying him and his brother. Masterson at that point hung around Dodge City because that's where they had been grading was right outside Dodge City. And he hung around Dodge City expecting that Ritter would have to come back through eventually. And uh, Masterson, while he was there, made friends. He was a very friendly, outgoing, sociable, amiable guy. So when Ritter did eventually make his way through, somebody saw Ritter, came and found Masterson and said, hey, that Ritter guy is on the train. So Masterson boards the train, sits down next to Ritter, and forced him to pay Masterson, his brother, and the third guy that had all been swindled by the railroad man. And he actually, he didn't just sit down next to him and say, hey, give me the money, because, you know, that could be seen as robbery. He was much more forward and open with that. He marched the guy, like, to the end of the train, and in front of everybody made him pay up. And the crowd was fully on his side. I guess Ritter was not a popular man, or Masterson was so popular that the crowd was like, yeah, pay the dude. We like him. We don't know you bugger out, but pay him first. Now, Wyatt was sort of taciturn. He was not much of a drinker. Um, he, he did get drunk once, and the hangover was such that he vowed never again. And so he pretty much stuck to coffee and an occasional beer. And while he did like gambling and had certainly no qualms with prostitutes, he by and large was pretty sure that being outside a jail cell was better than being inside a jail cell, which is a sentiment I feel like most of us can probably agree with wholeheartedly. He was fair. That was one of his most hallmark things, that he was very fair. He firmly believed that the law applied to all and it should be equally applied to all. There's at least one story in the book about a cowboy who got rowdy in town, and so Wyatt jailed him for the night by means of buffaloing, which basically just means he pistol whipped the dude, which sucks, but is arguably better than being shot. And then while the guy is still reeling from the smackdown, Wyatt would throw him in jail. 
when this cowboy's boss showed up, and he, the boss was also the owner of a herd, a guy named, by the name of Robert Wright showed up. Wright tried to pull the big swinging dick move. Do you know? Do you know how much money I bring to this town with my herds and my cowboys, and I could take my business elsewhere? And he's trying to do that to get his guy released without having to pay a fine. So Wyatt unlocks the jail cell and shove Wright into the jail cell with the guy. Let them both just cool their heels overnight. <laughs> we, we so need more officers willing to do that. Too many people bow to political pressure, but Wyatt Earp was not one of them. Quick side note, I know that buffaloing sounds bad, right? You read that and you're like, oh my God, he was just pistol whipping this guy? What the hell? And yes, I mean, Lord knows if such tactics were used today, people would rightly scream about police brutality. Rightly so. Here's the thing. There's actually two points I want to make on that topic. First off, this is a completely different time we're talking about. All right. These matters happened between 1873 and 1883. So that's well over 100 years ago, 140 years ago. That's forever. That is forever ago. Second, this was at a time when everybody carried guns. Everybody. All right. It was, there were no gun laws. There were no concealed carry. Everything was open carry. Everybody carried guns. This was normal. This was how life was lived back then. Not just the lawmen. Everybody. Cowboys, buffalo hunters, Bell Star. She carried, she carried guns. She, she robbed a saloon once, I believe in Dodge. I think it was in Dodge City, but it might've been one of the other anecdotes about her, but she was definitely known to carry guns. So if everyone is armed and then everyone starts shooting, this escalates everything and it becomes a massive problem, right? So when everyone is armed, you have to find a way to de-escalate a situation. Sometimes de-escalation includes pistol whipping a motherfucker. Sometimes if you're Bat Masterson, who was not taciturn and had quite a trickster spirit in him, you de-escalate by talking people down, which was one of his skill sets. He was good at talking people down. Um, but he was also known to, to Buffalo a dude a time or two in his day. It just that that was how life was back then. One, one of the best stories in here, which had me just cracking up because I was like, oh my gosh, um, Bat Masterson, when he was the, I think he was the sheriff of the entire county. So not just Dodge City, but the whole county. I don't know what county Dodge City's in. It, uh, one of the cowboys, one of the better known cowboys, believe it or not, Nat Love, was through town and he was quite drunk and he decided he wanted to steal a cannon from nearby Fort Dodge. And he was caught in the act because he was drunk, so you can't really do anything quietly when you're drunk, especially not stealing a cannon. So he gets caught, and the fort tells him, hey, we're going to have to hang you for theft of government property. And Nat begged them, said, hey, no, I'm friends with Bat Masterson, call Bat. And so they sent a runner because that was Bat Masterson's reputation. The, the, the fort didn't want a war with Bat Masterson. And so they sent a runner to Bat Masterson, and Masterson said, send the prisoner to me. I'll take care of it. So they did, because you don't want a war with Bat Masterson. And they sent Nat Love to Bat Masterson, and Love recalled, quote, Bat asked me what I wanted with a cannon and what I intended to do with it. I told him I wanted to take it back to Texas with me to fight the Indians with. And then basically everybody laughed at him because that's such a ridiculous thing to do, right? Then Bat told him that, told the soldiers I was all right, the only trouble being that I had too much bad whiskey under my shirt. It's a fair statement, friend. Love wasn't let go entirely free. Bat fined him by making him buy everyone around a drinks at the nearest saloon because the only way to combat bad whiskey is with good whiskey. Eventually, between Bat and Wyatt, Dodge City became downright civilized, with which Wyatt found boring, right? I mean, he... he 
spent three or four years in, in Dodge City, and in that time, he got everybody to toe the line. All right, they, they had a, the deadline is what they called it. There was a little line. Uh, okay, not like a line they drew in the sand, but like this edge of town is for the civilized folks. This edge of town is for everybody else. If you're gonna be a jackass, stay on this side of the line. And uh, he made them toe that line. And when it got too civilized, he got bored with it and he pulled up stakes and went to Tombstone. Uh, which is kind of touched on in this book, but not in depth. And I know the author wrote a book specifically on Tombstone and the events that happened there because I have that book too. Masterson left when he lost his reelection, not because he was a sore loser so much, but because his basically his feelings were hurt. And I kind of think rightly so. I mean, he, he was a hell of a sheriff. He, did, he was amazing at his job. He kept everybody in line. He wasn't as quick to pistol whip as Wyatt Earp has been. Um, but his opponent ran a negative campaign. Basically, he ran an attack campaign on him. And Masterson thought, well, this is ridiculous. I don't need to respond to this. Everybody knows me. People know what I'm good at and that I'm good at my job. And the uh, good people at Dodge City thought, why isn't he responding? And voted him out. And with that on that one, if you have good service, look the attack ads. So he left Dodge City. Uh, he eventually went to Tombstone. Or he joined Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, although I don't think he was there for the OK Corral. I'm trying to remember the movie Tombstone. Was Bat Masterson in that one? So what pulled Wyatt and Bat back to Dodge City was an event that never actually happened. And it was an almost war. It almost happened. But um, such were the men's reputation that it didn't. Uh, their mutual friend, Luke Short, who Bat actually met for the first time in Tombstone, had opened a saloon and dance hall in Dodge City. The current sheriff disliked Short, basically because of his connections to Earp and Masterson, and so he started harassing Short, uh, basically shutting him down for bogus violations for which other saloons, notably those with connections to the corrupt mayor, Larry Deeger, were allowed to operate with impunity. They're like, hey, you can't have singing girls in your saloon, and Luke is like, but they're singing girls in that saloon, and yeah, that saloon had the connection, and so, Short was shut down. So Short reached out to Wyatt and Bat and asked for their help. Wyatt and Bat, in turn, reached out to the Kansas City Governor, or sorry, Kansas City, Kansas State Governor, George Washington Glick, and advised that they were going to head over to Dodge City to ensure that this bit of uneven corruption didn't spread, that this stopped right now. And Governor Glick was like, cool deal. Go for it, dude. I'm uh, going to send my own emissary, Thomas Moonlight, to ensure that Mayor Deeger cooperates with this plan because. I'm with you. We can't have corruption in the town you just civilized. That's not going to fly. So Wyatt shows up and advises the sheriff that he's here to ensure the law is equally applied. And why doesn't the sheriff just deputize him right now? And the sheriff was like, cool beans, you're deputized. I'm out. And <laughs> just left. Like, but he's like, okay, Wyatt, no problem. This is your gig. You want this job? It's yours. And then he just left. <laughs> left Wyatt to deal with it. And, um, Bat then shows up, and the mayor folded like a bad poker hand. Uh, the fight Bat had expected never materialized. The Dodge, instead, what happened was the Dodge City Peace Commission was put into effect on June 10, 1883, and essentially law and order reigned supreme in Dodge City from that day forward. And that was that's why the Golden Decade is literally considered 1873, which is I think when Wyatt first showed up, to 1883 when Wyatt left for the last time and was like, "Don't make me come back here." And Dodge City's like, cool, we're not going to make you come back here. We got this. We're, we'll behave ourselves, Wyatt, we promise. 
this book was highly entertaining. It was so much fun to read. I and mean, it sort of whipsaws back and forth across the West. Uh, I mean, but every single character mentioned in the story all leads back to Dodge City in some capacity. Uh, every thread you think is a tangent weaves back to the main story. I mean, Clavin is a hell of a storyteller. He has a definite way with words that brings these larger-to-life characters back to reality and kind of grounds them in history. I'm trying really hard to work his Tombstone book into my reading schedule for next year because this was fun. I enjoyed the heck out of this one, and I want to see what else he can write about or, or what other stories he can tell or how he tells them. I'm hoping it's as good and entertaining as Dodge City was. And that's it for this week. If you uh, liked what you saw, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and I will see you guys next Sunday. Bye.